and on the sufficiency of Christ in salvation and believers' union with him in light of a false teaching that had threatened the community. In week three, Paul showed the Colossians how their union with Christ should affect their inward selves and their external relationships. And tonight we'll see Paul give his final instructions that are easily applicable to us and then close with a list of greetings. Paul opened the letter with a list of requests he and his ministry partners prayed for the Colossians. He circled back to the idea of prayer at the beginning of chapter 2. Prayer comes up a couple more times before the letter closes. Paul has shown by his own example what prayer looks like in his ministry, and he'll guide the Colossians to what prayer is supposed to look like in their lives now. Let's look at verses 2 through 4 in chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This week in your homework for verse 2, I had you take a trip back to the English classroom to rewrite it using different synonyms. I wanted you to slow down and think about what those familiar words mean. My own rephrasing read, pursue unwaveringly in prayer, being aware and alert in it with gratitude. The word for continue in the Greek involved the idea of determination, not quick to quit or give up. So the Colossians are commanded here to persevere in prayer. In other epistles, Paul has said to pray without ceasing and to be constant in prayer. Prayer should be a normal habit in the Christian's life. Being watchful in prayer has several meanings packed into the short phrase. The first being watchful, being awake, being alert is language Paul uses surrounding Christ's return. We've seen him reference the second coming in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Believers are to watchfully pray for the Lord to come. And that leads right into another meaning. As we're watchfully anticipating the Lord's return and seeking the things that are above, we're supposed to be transforming more and more into the new self day by day. The Colossians had just heard of the dangers of what is earthly in them back in chapter 3, that the old self has to be put to death and the new self must be put on. In being watchful in prayer, we become more aware of the temptations that surround us. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he finds Peter, James, and John asleep, says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is is a week. Matthew 26:14. Being watchful in our prayers will also have us more aware of God's answers. If we are watching, if we're alert, we'll see his mercy, grace and faithfulness resulting in gratitude and thankfulness to him, which then seeing his answers to our prayers should lead us to a recurring cycle of continually praying to him. Verses 3 and 4, while instructing the Colossians on prayer, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him and his ministry partners. Notice the language he uses of an open door. Right after that, he tells his readers for the first time that he's imprisoned on account of him proclaiming the gospel. Of course, we told you in week one, and the Colossians probably knew, it, knew about his imprisonment upon the letter's arrival. 
This is probably the imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts, somewhere around AD 60 to 62. Paul's not asking them to pray for a physical open door for himself. No, he's using it as a metaphor, showing he's more concerned with something else than his own personal freedom. The open door metaphor was the exact same for us today, what we use to describe an opportunity. So what is he asking for? An opportunity for what? Says the word to declare the mystery of Christ. God could open physical prison doors. He'd done so for Peter in Acts 12. Paul himself had seen physical prison doors opened by God while in prison in Acts 16. When Paul and Silas were in a Philippian jail, an earthquake shook the doors open. And what resulted from that? An opportunity for Paul and Silas to proclaim the mystery of Christ to a Philippian jailer. And his entire family believed. Paul knows despite whatever condition he finds himself in, God is able to work opportunities for his word, his mystery, his gospel to be declared. And though Paul may be bound, he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, he knows God's word is not ever bound. Paul moves to his last set of imperatives where chapter 3 included a Christian revamping of the household codes, dealing mostly in light of people within the Christian community. Paul is going to give the Colossians instructions on what to do with outsiders or unbelievers. Let's read verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Thinking about the Colossians here in particular, it's easy how to see their warning on the false teaching that threatened them would make them want to immediately forget about out any outsiders. The gut reaction of, I would say, most would be to distance themselves from outsiders out of fear and concern. Yet, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, the gospel that's come to them, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. To continue that increase in spreading, they have to stay engaged in evangelistic opportunities with those that have not been united to Christ. The Colossians will do that by employing wisdom that they have through their union with Christ. And what does wisdom have to do with it? Well, even for us today, the unbelievers we engage will have different starting points, personalities, agendas, and attitudes toward their hearing of the gospel. I asked you in your homework if you thought these commands towards outsiders were more or less straightforward than the imperatives given in chapter 3. There's not a wrong or right answer there necessarily, but for me, I, th I think these are less straightforward because there is not the same spiritual common ground that you'd have with a believing husband and wife, a believing father and children, a believing employer and employee in our case. Making the best use of time encompasses the idea that time is short and the Lord's return is always imminent. That ties back into the watchfulness of verse 2. One commentator described these, this original language as buying up what time is available, and another explained it as snapping up every opportunity that comes. And if we're being honest, for some of us, showing wisdom and sensitivities towards the outsider comes easier than snatching up the open doors. Others of us may be quicker to buy up every opportunity, but we don't always walk in the wisdom that's required for the soul we're sharing with. I want to circle back to that metaphor of walking as living from chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul had told them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
in chapter 2, verse 6, to continue walking in the Lord. It returns at the beginning of verse 5, walk in wisdom. Believers must realize that the way we live, the way we walk, affects how unbelievers see the gospel. One of the commentators had a great quote on this passage. He said, The reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced saving power. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the word of God can see the lives of those who do and can form their judgment accordingly. Paul is urging the believers to see that our actions should not dishonor the Savior we proclaim and become a further hindrance to outsiders who need to know him. As verse 6 shows us, though, actions aren't necessarily all the Colossians and by extension us need to watch. This verse was super convicting to me, as any verses dealing with the tongue usually are. For starters, our speech is always to be gracious. I don't know about you, but that's not how I'm able to describe my speech, especially with that always qualifier. Here, Paul is saying, especially with outsiders, that to show the grace of God, believers' speech must be filled with grace. Chapter 3, verse 8, in the middle of the vice list, showed what could be included in the old self's speech. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Some of us are more and less patient, more and less easily irritated, but in dealing with those who have not had the mystery of Christ revealed to them, we must be gracious. The believer's speech is also supposed to be seasoned with salt. Paul probably, Paul intentionally picked this phrase for several reasons. One, in the Roman culture's usage, salt in the context of speech could mean witty and winsome. Speech that's attractive and interesting, salty speech, salty speech, in this way could be to stir up more thoughts and questions in the unbeliever. Two, for the Jews, salt in a speech context was tied back to wisdom, wise speech. Again, seeking the Lord for wisdom in our speech will help believers know how to answer questions that the unbeliever may be asking, whether they're truly inquisitive questions or questions that may be hostile in nature. And then third, outside of a speech context, salt was used to preserve food from corruption. That's part of what is in Jesus' mind on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Those that are the salt of the earth would be expected to have speech that staves off the corruption of the world. The Colossians were reminded how the gospel came to them in chapter 1. They were once the outsiders. We saw in chapter 2 that we too were once dead in our trespasses and sin. Having grace in our speech towards unbelievers must begin by remembering in our hearts that we too were once unbelievers. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34 says, Gracious speech, gracious speech and wise actions begin in the renewing of our own hearts. The grace we've been shown is what we're called to extend to believers and unbelievers. Before we head into the next section, that's going to practically show us in real-life relationships what Paul meant by chapter 3, verse 11. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I want to point out this is the one and only distinction that should ultimately matter to the believer. Not the earthly distinctions of the world. They don't carry eternal weight. The spiritual distinction of believers and unbelievers is what matters 
eternally. Those in my discussion group are probably tired of hearing about the table that I've uh, been nerding about <laughs> in this week's homework. Truth be told, uh, I would have completely skipped over this last part of chapter four uh, just five years ago. If it was a reading plan, I would have turned the page and kept going in First Thessalonians. Uh, if it was a Bible study, I would have shown significantly less effort. So if either of those things are true of you, I totally understand. What does a list of names of people we don't know very well have anything to do with God or us? Well, the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, mixed with good teaching on Old Testament genealogies has changed my mind. I'm now fascinated with the idea that, the, that these lists of names that Paul is known for uh, he includes them in seven of his 12 epistles, are somewhat of the New Testament version of Old Testament genealogies. It's in part a spiritual ancestry, a spiritual family tree. Who are Paul's spiritual children? Who are the Colossians' family in the faith? Who are our brothers and sisters that have gone before us? Most of these names are relatively unknown to us, even after the table I love making so much. Yet each name holds significance. Each person can show us something, reminding ourselves these people were real people, just like you and me. We get a glimpse of the importance of faithfulness of those unknown to the world, but known by God and his kingdom. We're going to read this section in full first, and then as we go, I'll repeat what surrounds each person. We'll have a couple of side notes outside the short biographies I'm going to give you along the way. So verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So first, Tychicus, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to reread it. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus was a Gentile convert from Asia. Most scholars think he met Paul and became a believer during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus and became one of Paul's ministry partners in the later stages of Paul's life. He journeyed with Paul at the end of Paul's third missionary journey and joined Paul to take a collection from Gentile churches back to Jerusalem to assist Jewish Christians in need. 
after Colossians is written, we know he possibly went to Crete at one time to switch places with Titus. And the last we hear of Tychicus is in Paul's last letter of 2 Timothy, where Paul has sent him to Ephesus. Paul loved and trusted Tychicus. You see how he described him as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Brothers and sisters is the way Paul referred to members of the Christian community, the familial language. But Tychicus is not just a brother, which is special in itself. He is beloved by Paul. A faithful minister, not minister in terms of pastor like we may think, but referring to his general ministry to churches. His character and his ministry are marked with faithfulness to the Lord and to the Lord's people. He's a fellow servant in the Lord, one who serves the Lord alongside Paul. Tychicus was the letter carrier for this letter to the Colossians, as well as the letter to Philemon. And it's thought on the same trip that he carried the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Laodiceans that we see mentioned later. Letter carriers weren't simply postal workers or Amazon delivery workers like we see trying to make themselves scarce. Uh, Tychicus wouldn't have just delivered the letter to a Colossian believer and walked away. Paul's letter carriers would, be, would more than likely have read the letter aloud to the gathered community, elaborated with extra thoughts and commentary, and filled in any blanks or questions that the hearers would have had. This is one of the ways Tychicus would encourage and strengthen the hearts of the Colossians. Tychicus would also let the Colossians know more about Paul's imprisonment and how Epaphras is doing, along with the everyday, regular living type of details. Those things weren't usually included in the letters because of the relationship of the letter carriers to Paul. With this type of introduction, the Colossians would have surely welcomed Tychicus in and listened to him well. Then in verse 9, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Nicole mentioned Onesimus in week three. The, week three, the book of Philemon deals with Onesimus in more detail. He's Philemon's runaway slave that by God's sovereign hand met Paul during his imprisonment and was converted. Philemon hosted the Colossian church in his home. Onesimus would have been known by the Colossians. They would have been familiar with his situation and a runaway slave in this time could have been punished by death. But Paul describes Onesimus here in Colossians as our faithful and beloved brother. He gives similar descriptions that he gave of Tychicus and others will see. As Nicole mentioned in week three, this is a great practical example of chapter three, verse 11. Onesimus is listed on the same level as Paul's other partners. Spiritually, there is now no distinction between Onesimus and his earthly master, Philemon. In fact, in Philemon, Paul calls Onesimus his spiritual child and tells Philemon that he would have been glad for Onesimus to have stayed with Paul because he's of great help to his ministry. Paul introducing Onesimus here would have directed the Colossian church in how to handle his return. He is one of them. Onesimus will help Tychicus in updating the Colossians on everything happening with Paul and those with him. And then after the letter carriers are introduced, Paul sends greetings of his ministry partners who are with him in Rome to the Colossians. First is Aristarchus. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So he is a Jewish convert from Thessalonica. He potentially could have come in contact with Paul during Paul's second missionary journey in Thessalonica and went along with Paul as a ministry partner after that point. 
We know Aristarchus was one of Paul's companions in Ephesus when a riot broke out because angry craftsmen that sold idols weren't having as much business. The enraged crowd dragged Aristarchus into a theater knowing he was a companion of Paul's. Right after that, he journeyed with Paul through Greece and Macedonia and then on to Jerusalem along with Tychicus as a delegate from the Gentile churches taking an offering to the Christians there. He was also with Luke and Paul when Paul set sail for Rome, which is where he is now, and had the shipwreck landing them all on Malta. Here in Colossians, Aristarchus is called Paul's fellow prisoner. This could be literal, as in Aristarchus volunteered to share imprisonment with Paul to help him, or it could be metaphorical, held prisoner or captive to serve the Lord, like Paul. This would also have been a contrast to that false teaching, threatening to take captive um, the Colossians away from the truth. He's simply called a fellow worker in Philemon. And then Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. This Mark is also known as John Mark. The early church in Jerusalem met in the house of John Mark's mother, Mary, where Peter showed up after miraculously being freed from prison. That's where we hear about him first. John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey to Cyprus. But then when Paul headed on to Antioch, John Mark returned to Jerusalem. When Paul and Barnabas were back in Jerusalem at the conclusion of that journey and about to set out on the second, this is around AD 49, Barnabas wants to give John Mark another chance and Paul is not having it. Scripture calls it a sharp disagreement. Barnabas ended up taking his cousin Mark and going one way. Paul took Silas another. And that's the last we hear of Barnabas. But since Mark is identified as his cousin, it's thought the Colossians were acquainted with him. Some scholars think John Mark had a significant ministry in Rome. Peter mentions him in his first epistle from Rome and calls him a son. John Mark is also the author of the Gospel of Mark. There's a span of 12 years where we don't hear much about him, but it's clear at some point that Paul and Mark have reconciled. And a couple of commentators have speculated that Barnabas, whose name meant son of encouragement, could perhaps have been part of helping John Mark reconcile with Paul. And if Paul, I'm sure, remembered that when the disciples uh, were scared of him after his conversion, it was Barnabas who took Paul on. There were other instructions the Colossians had received about Mark. All we can do is guess there. The Colossians may have been aware of the situation between John, Mark, and Paul because they knew Barnabas. So Paul could be reassuring the Colossians that things are good between them. And that's easy to consider just being fellow humans, but we aren't certain. The last we hear about Mark from Paul is in 2 Timothy 4.11. He tells Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, I just think, what a beautiful reconciliation. It didn't seem to happen quickly. Sharp disagreements with brothers and sisters hardly reconcile quickly, even less than sharp disagreements. But this relationship shows us it's always possible. Personally, I couldn't help but think about Paul writing Colossians 3, 12 and 13 as he looks at John Mark, or at the least has their relationship in the forefront of his mind. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And then in verse 11, in Jesus, who is called justice. This is all we know about justice. He is a Jew. Uh, Jesus was a popular Jewish name until around the second century when uh, Jews, when relations between Jews and Christians grew tense. Often Jews would take on a Greek name similar to their Hebrew name. And this would have been the case for Paul, who was Saul, and then Justice, whose Hebrew name was Jesus. One of our side notes outside of our brief bios occurs here at the end of verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Paul identifies Aristarchus, John Mark, and Justice as Jews in the sense of national identity. Obviously, they are no longer religiously Jewish. He calls them all fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And sometimes when we see or hear that phrase, kingdom of God, we can immediately think about the future reality when Christ returns again, the not yet part of our reality. But here, Paul is talking about the kingdom of God that is already the last two verses in Acts, uh, which would have been following this imprisonment, says that Paul lived in Rome for two years and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, which reminded me of Jesus himself at the start of his earthly ministry, preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, at hand meaning now, present, already. And these three men who were raised Jewish, men of the circumcision, are the only ones with that shared experience with Paul in Rome at this time. Which may answer the question some of you may have had after reading something like 311, wondering why Paul would even mention their nationality. Earthly distinctions do affect our everyday lives, our experiences, our stories. But Christ is all and in all. He unites what the world and the old self would want to forever keep divided. This also may be mentioned to remind his readers of the love and concern Paul does have for the Jews as he writes at great length about in Romans. And these three men were a great comfort to Paul. It's easy for me to think of Paul as a lone ranger, but it's clear here, especially seeing the tie-ins, we call him Paul's missionary journeys, but Paul was never alone. He then follows by mentioning three Gentiles who are with him. Verses 12 and 13, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So Epaphras is thought to have converted during Paul's Ephesian ministry, like Tychicus, and returned the 100 miles home to the Lycus Valley as an evangelist to Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. The three cities formed a triangle, I hope you saw that on your map, all located between 10 and 15 miles from each other, and they were located on important Roman roads. Epaphras was more than likely the founder of those three Christian communities and still exercised a pastoral oversight type of role. In Philemon, Paul calls Epaphras his fellow prisoner, like Aristarchus in Colossians, but he includes in Christ Jesus uh, there in Philemon. So again, it could be metaphorical or literal. 
We've already learned of Epaphras in Paul's opening. Paul calls him his beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on the Colossians' behalf. Here in 4.12, Paul calls him a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, which is how Paul often introduces himself in other epistles. Paul could be doing this on purpose for the Colossians to see that Paul backs Epaphras' authority in their church over any of the false teachers trying to creep in. Epaphras is the one who brought them the grace of God in truth. Paul mentions Epaphras' struggle in prayer for the Colossians again, most likely because of the threat of false teachers taking his loved ones away from the gospel. Epaphras prays for the Colossians to stand mature. That word telos from week two is back, made complete, perfect, and fully assured in God's will. He's praying that they would continue to be sanctified day by day until they're glorified. Epaphras is a good example of continuing steadfastly in prayer with his constant interceding for the Colossians. And Paul vouches for Epaphras in verse 13 for his ministry to those in the Lycus River Valley. A rare word in the Greek for work is used that involves a high degree of difficulty. Most scholars, again, think that this has to do with the false teaching. Epaphras would naturally be concerned knowing the subtlety of false teachers and that he's not physically present to help. Epaphras is one of the Colossians, and as we see from the verses that mention him, he is very concerned for his brothers and sisters. His deep pastoral care, devotion, and love is evident. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So Luke wrote a quarter of the New Testament as he is the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. This verse in Colossians is where we find out that Luke was a doctor. Even though theologians have noted for a long time how much the vocabulary in his books show that the author was a physician. He was a regular traveler with Paul. He is part of the we and us that you see in Acts. We know he was with him in Macedonia and on the trip back to Jerusalem after the third missionary journey where a lot of these guys were, as well as the shipwreck on Malta. In 2 Timothy, he's the only partner still with Paul at the time of that letter's writing. We don't know much about Luke, where he came from, how he was converted, other than his occupation and Gentile nationality. We learn about him most through his writing. In his gospel, he includes many stories of healings, often dealing with the outcasts of society. He's also the only Gentile author of a gospel, and his focus in writing seems to be for a Gentile audience, which then leads us to the most warning-filled person on the list at the end of verse 14, as does Demas. Demas is part of the list of fellow workers in Philemon, which I told you was written around the same time of Colossians. We don't know much else about him besides that he is a Gentile. In Paul's later Roman imprisonment, just a couple years after this one, which would have ultimately led to his execution, Paul pins to Timothy a request for Timothy to come to Rome soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And that is most definitely not what any of us would want the last words of the Bible to speak of about any of us, but here we are. Demas serves as a warning of how quickly we can be taken captive by something other than the Lord. I think James would have pointed Demas to his question in James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy 
of God. It's true, and these are our last words on Demas. He serves as a sobering warning for all of us to seek the things that are above, not earthly things. After giving the Colossians a picture of who is with Paul, he greets a couple of his gospel partners, partners who are in the Lycus Valley. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. This is the only verse in the Bible that mentions Nympha. She is one of the 16 women Paul mentions in his letters. Nympha was the hostess of the Laodicean church. And in our current context, we hear host hosting or hostess as hospitality or entertainment for an event or meal. In this context, a commentator noted church hosts and hostesses could have had a variety of roles, whatever they were capable of, what was necessary, and what they were gifted for. Householders were wealthy, so they would have cared for material and physical well, the physical well-beings of church members. They would have supported missionaries like Paul and company. And because of their status, they were more likely to be literate, so they probably reread old epistles and Old Testament passages in their worship gatherings. They probably would have facilitated communion and other fellowship meals and worked alongside leaders to make sure gatherings ran smoothly. They would have more than likely been the first ones who, who would have welcomed or turned away visiting teachers. We have other pictures of women and men who hosted the local community of believers in their homes. As I've already mentioned, Mary, the mother of John Mark in Jerusalem, and Philemon in Colossae. In addition, Gaius at Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and Rome, and quite possibly Lydia in Philippi and Phoebe in Sincrea. We learn more about Nympha by looking at the list of names and where the church in his or her house also appears. A different commentator said the phrase of a church in his, her, or their house seems to only gather around persons of some mark and leadership. And I hope that in a room full of women, you find Nympha life-giving. It's far too easy in the greater Christian culture for boxes to get really tight around women serving their local church with their gifts. We must be careful that our own strict boundary lines are drawn where scripture draws them, that our opinions are formed by scripture and not the other way around. And I think Provro does this well, and that is a true blessing. Verse 16 is our next side note. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. From this one verse, we can actually unpack a lot. It, it seems like it's um, unnecessary. But Paul commands the letter to be read among the Colossians or in a pub public gathering of the church, which is what would have been done with Old Testament passages for their corporate worship, putting the epistles at the same level of importance as Old Testament scripture. They're also told to trade letters with Laodicea, which a commentator pointed out showed that Paul knew from the beginning that his letters had more than just local relevance. Certainly they were different churches, different letters, different people, different circumstances. Perhaps the two churches needed different instructions on the false teaching in the area, but they could learn from seeing each other's letters. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us right now, learning from this letter to the Colossians. It's presumed that the false teaching hadn't threatened to affect Hierapolis, which is why it's not mentioned here. And there are lots of thoughts on this letter to Laodicea, but most scholars agree that it's lost to us, much like a couple of the letters to the Corinthians. 
You saw in your homework, though, that we do see another correspondence to the Laodicean church some 30 years later. A letter the Apostle John is told to write by Jesus himself in his revelation on the island of Patmos. It is the last of the seven letters to the churches. The church at Laodicea are those considered lukewarm, comfortable, and content as they are. This sister church of Colossae has to be severely rebuked, but Jesus reminds them that his discipline is done in love. They don't realize their spiritual poverty and his sufficiency to save and fill them. He calls them to be quick to repent. And then our last bio, Archippus, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We know from Philemon that Archippus is a member of Philemon's household, possibly his son. Paul calls, calls him a fellow soldier in that letter. And we don't know what his ministry was, but Paul makes sure the whole Colossian church sees this message and can encourage Archippus in the ministry that the Lord has given him. So I hope as you worked through that table in the homework or just listened through those short bios tonight that your mind thought about brothers and sisters in your life that have encouraged and come alongside to partner with you in the faith. Maybe you can think of those in your own life who are marked by faithfulness and devotion to the Lord and to you. Those who are a constant encouragement at just the right time in your own ministry. Those who are willing to be figuratively dragged, shipwrecked, or imprisoned alongside you. Those who fight to reconcile disagreements, even if it's not a quick fix. Those, who care and those whose care and concern for you is made evident through their struggle of prayer on your behalf. And if you haven't already, thank the Lord for them and reach out to them this week to let them know. I also want you to think about the faithfulness of those who are close to unknown, those like Justice, Nympha, and Archippus. That's where the majority of us will land in the grand scheme of things, relatively unknown to the world. But our obedience to God and his word will mark us faithful by those who do know us in the present and by the God who called us into his kingdom. And I'm convinced the kingdom of God will be flowing with the faithful unknowns. Verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It was standard at this time for authors to dictate a letter to a scribe, and it's thought to be Timothy for Colossians, as seen in chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 shows that there was a concern about forged letters being sent to churches or individuals under Paul's name. So to prove their authenticity, Paul would usually write a brief note in his own handwriting, just like a signature. Remember my chains has connotations to remembering and prayer in the Greek. Other translations expand to something like, remember the hand that writes is a chained hand. And it's thought that Paul would have been chained to his guard. So with pen at hand at this point, he's very aware of his current circumstance and asks again that the Colossians remember to pray. Paul began the letter with a wish of grace. And after seeing the grace the Colossians will need to rest in their union with Christ against false teaching, the grace they'll need to put to death the old self and put on the new self, the grace they'll need in dealing with outsiders, and ultimately the grace of God they've been shown through Christ, the hope of glory. It's not any wonder that Paul ends with another wish for grace. 
To close out the entire study, I'm just going to take a few minutes to look at the book as a whole. So we get so uh, um, really caught up in the chapters as we go, but just to zoom back out, focusing in on some of the recurring homework questions we repeatedly ask you. We know the Bible is God's special revelation of himself to humanity. The Bible is first a book about God. In your ongoing homework, we ask you to list where you see the three persons of our triune God. We ask weekly what attributes of God you notice, making the small note to look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Sometimes it's easy in books of the Bible to explicitly see the different roles of the three persons. Sometimes it's more implicit. Naturally, there's overlap in roles and functions. Three persons, one God. This won't be a fully comprehensive list from the letter to the Colossians, but I hope that it shows you how to practice seeing God in any text of the Bible. So in the book of Colossians, we see that God the Father in his glorious might has delivered the saints of light from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We see that God the Father holds all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and in that he has revealed to his saints the mystery hidden for ages and generations. He raised Christ from the dead, made us alive with him, forgave us all our trespasses, canceled our record of debt by nailing it to the cross of Christ. He is who gives spiritual growth. He is wrathful against what is earthly and needs to be put to death. He opens the door for his word to be declared and proclaimed. In the book of Colossians, we see that God the Son is the image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of all things. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. He is our redeemer, reconciler, and forgiver of sins. He brings peace through his blood on the cross. He will one day present his bride holy, blameless, and above reproach before God the Father. God the Son identifies with the affliction of his people. He is the mystery of God, the hope of glory. He is the personification of wisdom. He's the head of the church. He's the God-given tradition. He's the substance to which all of the Old Testament shadows pointed, the promised Christ. He is the one and only Lord, the authority over all. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is our life, and one day he will appear again. He is all and in all. He is the creator of the new self. He unifies his people above and beyond any earthly distinctions. And in the book of Colossians, we see God, the Holy Spirit, is how Epaphras made known the Colossians' love to Paul. While that is the only explicit mention of the Spirit, we know from other parts of Scripture that he is implicitly active in this letter. For starters, he is the divine author speaking through the human author, Paul. All Scripture is breathed out by God. In John 16, 14, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit to come, says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Christ is most definitely glorified in the book of Colossians, which is a function of the Holy Spirit. With the recurring theme of prayer, we know the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints and prompts us to pray according to the will of God. God the Holy Spirit is who makes the new self possible. We are incapable of putting the old self to death and the new self on in our own strength. 
He is the one who unites us to Christ. And through that union, we receive all of God's gifts, salvation, discernment, wisdom, mercy, grace, and strength. The Holy Spirit unifies us to other brothers and sisters in the faith. The Spirit illuminated truth to the Colossians through this letter, and he continues to illuminate truth and use this letter to bear fruit in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this study of Colossians. I pray that you would help us to hold dear um, in our minds uh, things that you have shown us. I pray as we wrap up this study that you would help this group of women grow, or, yeah, grow in you, walk in a manner worthy of you, rest in our union with Christ, seek the things that are above. By your spirit, I pray we'd be a people that do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we live with the new self in our Christian relationships, that we continually and watchfully pray, that we walk in wisdom and have gracious speech, and that we strive for maturity and sanctification. May we be faithfully devoted in the ministry you've given each of us and your people, even if we're unknown. Remind us that your grace that you have and continue to show us is enough. And may your grace renew our hearts to know, love, and obey you more. Bless our last time in these group discussions. May conversation be edifying to each other and glorifying to you. In your son's name, amen. <laughs>